You can keep your thumb in 2 Samuel 15. We're continuing our journey through 1 and 2 Samuel. We've seen a number of things, as I mentioned in our prayer this week in particular, occur as we saw the bombing of the concert in Manchester. Uh, two uh, individuals lost their life confronting an angry individual on a max train in Portland, and then 23 or more Christians in Egypt lost their life to terrorists. And uh, in this age of our modern communications, especially these tragedies and these horrible things that occur uh, come maybe even closer to home than ever before. Uh, an, an incident can occur, and uh, a minute later, you're seeing it on your newsfeed of choice. And so we're seeing uh, uh, either an increase in difficult situations around the world or at least an increase in awareness of them. And not only that, the fact is many of us are dealing with tragedies and difficulties and they don't involve people in far-flung countries. They involve something commonly known as Monday. And we sometimes even feel bad for the trials and struggles we face despite the fact that they are real and they are difficult and they are painful. We think, well, at least I didn't lose my life at a concert or at least I'm not being persecuted. But nonetheless, uh, the difficulties and the challenges we face today are real, and they're not to be minimized. And we're, we're going to look at the life of David and understand uh, and, and think about and, and imagine what it must be like to lose everything. David, in this passage in Second Samuel 15 and 16, David loses everything. So the question is, what do we do when all is lost? I don't mean when some is lost. For David, it's all gone, when all is lost. What do we do when, when all is lost? I'm going to look at four things uh, in the life of David and see if we can make some connection with them in our own life. I'm going to give away the outline at the beginning, so that way if you have to go because your smoker says it's time to take the pork butt out or something, you're not going to feel bad like you missed something. When all is lost, what do I do when I'm betrayed? I am betrayed and all is lost. What do I do? What do we do when all is lost because our loyal friends and family are all gone? Our loyal friends and family aren't there. What do we do when all is lost because God is distant? And what do we do when all is lost because the shame, failure, and guilt that we carry is too much for us? So that's where we're going to go. What do we do when all is lost? David, of course, is king in Israel. His son Absalom has returned. If uh, you had, were here a week or two ago, we covered some significant dramatic events. Absalom has murdered his brother Amnon because Amnon assaulted Absalom's sister. Absalom, over the course of several years, has finally been able to return to Jerusalem and, in fact, has even been received back again by King David. But Absalom has a long play in mind, and Absalom is a very smart, a very patient person, and he plans to take the throne, the kingdom of Israel, away from David, and he's willing to take as long as necessary to do it. And the passage that we read this morning describes his technique. He would go out to the city gate, and he'd find a spot, and as people were coming in to go to the city gate, he would grab them and say, hey, what are you doing here? Now, we have to understand the city gate is much more than just a doorway. The city gate was the courthouse. It was the city hall. 
It's where would you would go if you needed uh, to file suit against somebody or if you needed con- to conduct a business transaction. So Absalom would sit there, and when people would walk by, he'd say, where are you from? And people would say, I'm from such and such town in Israel. And when somebody would answer in such a way that indicated they were an Israelite, he'd say, listen, guess what? The king's got no representative for you. Whatever you came here to handle, not going to get handled. Oh, if only I was in charge. Absalom had two things going for him. Uh, Number one, uh, Absalom uh, is a looker. Uh, Absalom in the children of David are known, is known as Mr. McSteamy. That's in the Hebrew. You can look it up. The Bible, in fact, describes him as the most handsome human in Israel. There was not one flaw from the, his head to his, the bottom of his feet. Now think about it. We all have flaws we don't like, right? We all have it. I said it out loud, and you're going, oh, now that's the last thing I want to think about, right? Absalom say, what's your one flaw? Absalom goes, you know, I can't really think of one. I'm just that amazing. And so he would sit by the side of the road, and he had the one criteria for leadership that mattered to the people of Israel. Frankly, it was the one criteria for leadership that matters for all people. And what is that? He was a good-looking guy. He must be a leader. Look at He's amazing. His hair flows. It's, it's got a sheen to it. And so people would say, this stunningly good-looking and confident young man as they walk by, what are you doing here? Well, how are you, young man? I'd love to talk to you. If any of the husbands were saying, no, we're busy, the wife was saying, no, we should, we should talk to him, I mean, just for a minute, at least see what he has to say. And Absalom would say, there's nobody at the gate. You've wasted your trip. But if I, you know, if I were in charge, nobody's trip would ever be wasted and their cases would be heard the same day. And you know what? You were right. And how long did Absalom do this? Four years he did this. So he's willing to be patient. And the Bible says over the course of four years, the entire nation of Israel, their heart was turned over to Absalom, which means they no longer loved David. They loved Absalom instead. Absalom then says to his dad, Hey, Dad, I'm going to go up to Hebron to fulfill some vows for when I was in exile. And just so you know, that was a complete farce. If you're going to fulfill a vow, you were supposed to do it within a short period of time. This has been years. David says go, and Absalom turns the kingdom over, announces the trumpets, and the people of Israel proclaim Absalom is king, and David is rejected. Word gets back to David that the heart of the people are after Absalom, and and David says, we've got to get out of here. He gets all of his household, the entire court of his palace together, all of his family together, and they run for their lives. They head east out of the city of David. The only people he leaves behind is 10 of his concubines. Everybody else flees straight east. The reason he's going east is because it's the exact opposite direction as the city of Hebron. So he's going as fast as he can, as far away from uh, Absalom as he can. David is running from his own palace. David is running from his own people. The Bible describes David on his flight with his robe torn and dirt thrown on his head, and he was going on this journey with no shoes on. And that was a great sign of mourning and loss and grief. David has lost, he's lost his throne, he's lost his family, he's lost his people, he's lost his kingdom, he's now a man on the run, and the current sitting king, Absalom, wants him dead. 
What do you do when you've been betrayed? Not betrayed by some nobody, betrayed by his own son. His own son that he bring, uh, brought back into his family and sought to re- redeem him and restore him. What do you do when you're betrayed? What made David king? That's a fair question to answer that question. What made David king? How did David know he was king? Was it because he sat on a fancy throne? Was it because he had a great palace and it was a beautiful palace built for him by one of the local kings? Is David king because of his ability to lead well? Is it because he was able to provide his people justice and uh, peace and prosperity? In fact, remember, when Absalom was taking over the kingdom, he convinced the people that David didn't provide justice, even though in 2 Samuel 8, the Bible describes David's reign as one of justice. So what made David king? There is only one thing that made David king, and this is found in 2 Samuel 7. What makes David king is a promise of God. What The reason David is king is because David, uh, God made a promise to David that he would be king. In fact, God even took the promise further and saying, David, you will be king and your son will be king forever. Someone who comes from your body, your own son, will sit on the throne of Israel forever. David is king because God's promise to him was that he was the king over Israel. We can put it this way, everything about who David is, is found in God's promises, not in David. It's really important, I know it sounds really simplistic, but think about it, understand it. Everything about who David is, is found in God's promises. So when David was betrayed by Absalom, David experienced hurt, he experienced sadness, he experienced mourning, he experienced loss, he was crying and weeping and there were real tears, he felt uh, broken and sad and, and was filled with uh, questions. None of these things were minimized. He wasn't skipping out of Jerusalem. I'm not worried about it. God's going to be faithful. He was broken and sad. All of these things were true. However, David did not despair. Despair is when we've lost all hope. Despair is when the future is uh, impossible and, and, and is not survivable. Despair is when I have not only lost everything, I've also lost me. If David required a throne to be king, he was no longer king and he would have lost himself. But the fact is, everything that was true about David was true because of God's promises. And do God's promises go away? The answer to that is no. You were thinking about it. I don't know. Do God's promises ever not come true? Of course not. God's promises are the one thing that never fail. And so therefore, David is firm and confident in who he is and what God is doing, despite the fact that he was betrayed and he was experiencing loss and he was experiencing mourning. Who David is is found in God, and and who God is cannot be lost, so therefore David could not and did not despair. We know this is true because look at Psalm 3. If you don't want to find it, I'm going to read it. It's only uh, eight verses long, so it's short. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, 
my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and He answers me from His holy mountain. I lie down and sleep, and I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. You didn't know you were allowed to pray like that, were you? Oh, yeah, that's a break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Lord, you are a shield around me. You are the one who is going to lift my head. David is saying as he's fleeing from Jerusalem for his life, along with his whole family and his court, God, you are the one who sustains me. You are the one who delivers me. Not my throne, not a big army, not a fancy palace, but Lord, you are the one who sustains me. You are the one who keeps me. How could David still have hope when he has lost everything because of a deep and significant betrayal? And the fact is, he kept the right thing, the promises of God and God himself, as the ultimate things. One pastor put it this way, Sin, basically, in most cases, is when we take good things and make them ultimate things. We can take our relationships, we can take our family, we can take our success and our victories, we can uh, take our health, uh, even our prosperity, and all of these things are good things. Amen? These are all good things. Like, I don't know if I'm allowed to say those things. Those are really good things. The problem is not those things, that those things are bad. The problem is we take those things, our families and our relationships and our successes and our victories, our prosperity, and we make them ultimate things. And we say, since I have these things, I matter. Since I have these things, I have hope. And then when those things go away, we lose significance and we lose hope. All of those things, our relationships and our families and our successes and our blessings uh, in our life are in fact blessings from God, but they aren't the ultimate thing that gives us meaning and purpose and reason. And David is saying, the Lord can sustain me because the one ultimate thing in my life, God, based not on my performance, but based on His promise, never goes away. And so the ultimate thing in my life is sure, and it's certain, so I can experience loss and not experience despair. How do we keep the betrayal in our life from destroying us? Because betrayal is hard. We've all been betrayed to one degree or another, and in some of our cases, betrayed significantly and painfully, so we're not minimizing it at all. But the way David allowed his betrayal from destroying him was in keeping his relationships where they ought to be as good things, as blessings from God, but not ultimate things. The one ultimate thing in his life was God's promises to him. And those, things, and those promises could never go away. We risk being destroyed by betrayal when we allow relationships or other things in our life to try and do what only God can do. When all is lost, what do I do when I experience betrayal? One of the things we can do is come to God and seek Him that He might help us understand what's ultimate in our life, that we might find where true hope is. And this is not a means of of glossing over the hurt because David did not. He cried from Jerusalem all the way to the Jordan River. 
you know, I have trouble carrying weeping on for a good 10 to 15 minutes. At a certain point, don't you get tired and tired? You cried so long, pretty soon, I'm, yeah, I'm just too tired. I'll stay sad, but I'm done with the crying. David cried from Jerusalem to the Jordan River. That's a long drive, much less a walk. And just so you know, there's a 3,700-foot elevation change from Jerusalem to the Jordan River. Luckily, it's downhill, I guess. He was able to experience that betrayal and the hurt of it without despairing because he kept God where he ought to be. That was the ultimate thing in his life. God's promises were sure. What do we do when all is lost because our loyal friends aren't there? David makes his way from Jerusalem uh, up the Mount of Olives, due east of Jerusalem, and over the top of the Mount of Olives. As he's making his way out of Jerusalem, a group of Philistines come out to him. In fact, 600 Philistines led by a guy named Ittai the Gittite. Somebody give him that name as a practical joke. What do we call that guy? Ittai the Gittite sounds good. So Ittai the Gittite and 600 Philistine friends come out to David and say, David, we're coming with you. And David says this to Ittai the Gittite, listen, you have not been with me that long. Uh, the, this Philistine contingent was loyal to David. They had come over to Israel from the Philistines, but they had not been with David long enough for David to consider them in his closest of circles. So here David is fleeing the people of Israel. So Israel has turned their back on him, and who comes to his aid? A bunch of Philistines. If, if, to add insult to injury, God sends him help with Philistines. I mean, seriously? Anybody had that prayer before? You prayed that today. Seriously, God, really? We're going to do it this way. This is ridiculous. You're allowed to pray that way, so you can do that, okay? So the Philistines come, and David actually says, listen, go back, serve Absalom. I can't, I can't, I can't help you. And the Philistines uh, say this, Ittai the Gittite says this to David down in verse uh, 22. Uh, let, me, let me find it here. Ittai the Gittite replied to David, verse 21, As surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there we will be. This Philistine leader comes to David and it says, where you are, we will be. Whether you live or die, that's what we will do. You live, we live. You die, we die. No worries. Does that sound familiar? Another individual said it first. Her name was Ruth, and she was saying it to her mother-in-law, Naomi in Ruth 1.16, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. I don't think the Philistines were ignorant of David's family history, Ruth being David's great-great-great-grandmother. The Philistines were saying, we are like Ruth, your Moabite relation, who said, I am going with you where you were going, and I will die if you die, and I will be with you, but we're not leaving. David, we're not going to leave you just like Ruth wouldn't leave Naomi. And we can contrast this with the men of Israel that we read in 15 verse 2. It says, all of Israel, their hearts were after Absalom. So the hearts of Israel were after Absalom, and the hearts of the Philistines were after David. But the Philistines were saying, we will be loyal to you unto death. And what was David's response to the Philistine contingent? Let's roll. March on, he said. 
David here uh, had all of his friends, all of his loyal friends, his closest people, other than uh, the very court in his household. But, but the men of Israel had all turned their back on him. All of his relationships, all of his friendships were at risk. Many of them were, were lost. And David had the risk here of encountering a loyal group of people and, and being so concerned about who wasn't there that he lost the people who were there. We can call this the empty chair syndrome. You go out to coffee or lunch with a group of friends and several of them come, but somebody is absent. And instead of enjoying the company of the two or three friends that you have with you, you spend the whole time mourning that your one friend was not there. And that's a great way to make sure that the next time you have coffee that none of them are there, isn't it? David ran the risk here of having lost friendships, of failing to recognize who were still with him. And maybe he would prefer Israelite friendships over Philistine friendships, but nonetheless, he said to the Philistines, March on. You are with me and I am with you. I will not disregard the relationships God has given me despite the fact that I have lost so much. So many have betrayed me. So many have abandoned me. We can have relationships in our life that will break down because of conflict. They will break down because of distance. And we will experience loss and mourning over those at times. We must be very, very careful to, to, to understand what David understood here. Is all of the relationships we have are not the ultimate thing in our life. All, the ultimate thing in our life is God himself. And he is going to put into our lives the people we need at this moment. We can pray for resolution. We can pray for redeeming of relationships that are broken. We can pray for opportunities to be close with those we have lost in the past. But it's critically important in the midst of having lost those that we don't miss the ones who are there. That we don't take for granted the ones who are faithfully always there. Come on, we've got a number of those friends in our life, don't we? And we don't have to think about them. We don't have to wonder. And we can miss the opportunity to enjoy the blessing God has given us in them because we spend our time mourning the loss of other people. Don't miss the people who are in our life today. What do we do when we lose everything, including friends who are no longer there? Is number one, remember, the friendships we have in our life are merely blessings from the ultimate relationship we have, which is God. And we ought to value those relationships we do still have and pray that he would give us the peace in the midst of those uh, broken relationships. May he give the redemption and the reconciliation that is needed. In many of those relationships, the brokenness is such that it would require a miracle of God for reconciliation to occur. Until that day comes, we can enjoy the blessings God has given us. What do we do when God is distant? When we've lost everything and God is distant. It's one of those unspoken sins we're not supposed to tell people about, especially on Sunday mornings. We show up in a place like this, and we're supposed to, how are you? Oh, the Lord blesses me today. And then you ask, well, how's the Lord blessing you? Uh, in a blessy way, blessing, blessy, blessed way. He's blessing my, my socks off. No, specifically, what's the blessing? Uh, he hasn't killed me, okay? That's the upside right now, okay? What do we do when all is lost, and in the midst of that, God goes on vacation? It's Memorial Day weekend. Where's God? Obviously, He's at Howard Prairie. 
David is making his way up the western slope of the Mount of Olives, and he's cresting over the top of the Mount of Olives, and the priest comes out, Zadak the priest, along with all the priests, and guess what they have with them? The Ark of the Covenant. And they show up to David with the Ark of the Covenant. And they come to David and they say, let's go, let's do this. God is with you. The priesthood is with you. Where you are, God is, and we will see God overcome these evildoers. The priests dutifully come to David's aid. And what does David do? The Ark of the Covenant belongs in its place, in Jerusalem, in its tabernacle. And the priesthood belongs with the Ark of the Covenant in its place, in its tabernacle. He sends the priests and all of his retinue back to Jerusalem. He says, you belong in Jerusalem. That is where God's people are. God is not for me alone. He is for his people. I am not taking his ark with me. I am not taking the priesthood with me. Go back to Jerusalem. As David is fleeing from Jerusalem in a very real and physical sense, he is feeling that distance between him and God. David would routinely throughout the Old Testament, when he had need, go into the, the, the temple of God, the tabernacle of God, and pray in God's presence. And now as he fled from there, he was going to miss that. We see some of David's heart over in Psalm 17. I'm going to read, excuse me, a couple of verses. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear me, Lord, my plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. Just an aside, we don't have time for it. Why does David pray, hear me? Why does David say, hear me, God? Because I don't think you do, God. See, we've got to remember, David's just a dude. We give him too much credit. We say, oh, man, this guy is so... Hear me, O Lord. Of course, he prays in King James. He's saying, hear me, Lord, because his heart is filled with the weight that wonders if God is, in fact, hearing him. Hear me, Lord. He says it twice. Why does he say it twice? He's not convinced he's hearing him. Hear me, Lord. Hear my prayer. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. God, do you hear me? I don't know if you've been paying attention, Lord. What's happening is not right. Though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. Though people tried to bribe me, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. David here says, God, I need you to hear my prayer. God, I need you to be near to me. David here yearns for God's closeness. David yearns for God's proximity. He, he asks God, I need you to come near to me and hear me because I know I can't lose you. It seems like I'm being driven from your presence, God. If you can imagine that long march up the Mount of Olives, it seems like, God, you're getting further and further away from me. But, God, you must hear me. God, you cannot be lost. 
David here is pleading for God's faithfulness. Why? Because God's faithfulness to His promises do not require the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. God's faithfulness to His promise does not require the presence of the priesthood. God's faithfulness to His covenant requires what? God's faithfulness to His covenant. God is that certain to fulfill His promises. What is God's promise to David? Just an aside here, 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 and 12. This is what God said to David. And these are the covenant God made with David. This is what the Lord says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Verse 9. I have been with you wherever you have gone as long as the Ark of the Covenant was there, right? I've been with you wherever you have gone. David knows from the promises of God, God's pre- His presence is assured because that's what God is like. He is one who is faithful to His people. He continues down in verse 12. When your, when your days are over, this is God speaking to David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. God's promises, or God's presence, I should say, is based on God's promise. But God seems distant. So God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but at the same time, God seems distant. You don't have to answer out loud, but does God seem distant to you? If not today, has God in seasons of your life seemed distant? If you can answer no to those questions, you are blessed indeed. I think almost Uh, all Christians, if not all Christians, at many times, if not often in their life, will have an experience that says, God seems distant. But we have to understand, the, the one part of that phrase, God seems distant, there's only one part of that phrase that is actually true, and it is this part of it, seems Now, it is true, there are many times in our life where we say, where's God? I have no idea. The dwarf planet Pluto, for all I know. Because he sure doesn't seem very close to me, despite the fact that Jesus promised in Matthew 28, 20, that I'll always be with you. So how do we know that even in the seemingness of God's distant, that he isn't distant? How did David know God was present, even though God seemed in proximity to be distant? He trusted in the promise of God. So what's the promise of God to us? That in our natural state, in our normal state, God is in fact not only distant, but He is separated from us. The simple fact is, all of us are rebels. We are not rebels without a cause, we are rebels with a cause, that one cause. You know what that is? I want to be God. The sooner everybody else and God Himself recognizes it, the better. And so in our hearts is born up rebellion that says, my way or the highway, I know best. If you wonder if this is born up into our hearts from birth, then you've never had teenagers. 
That never goes away. We just get better at being polite as we get older. It's still there. We just somehow learned manners. So Jesus comes down to a bunch of rebels and says, I will die for you on the cross for you. So I will die a rebel's death on behalf of rebels. And what did we say in regard to him dying on the cross? Uh, Congratulations, good for you, knock yourself out. While we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling, Jesus died on the cross. He did not come to uh, a claim of rebels saying, he's here, he's here. He came to us telling him, whatever, dude. Yeah, knock it out. So Jesus dies on the cross, sheds his blood to pay for our rebellion, despite the fact that our rebellion is still there. I mean, most of us are more than happy to serve people as long as we have some sense that they will appreciate it. Jesus comes and dies for people who don't care. Then, three days later, he rises from the dead. So what he has promised through his sacrifice for us is he has promised that in trusting in him, our rebellion is paid for, it's atoned for because of the cross. And not only that, because he's raised from the dead, we can live for him forever. At some moment in our life, if we come to him, at some moment in our life, the Holy Spirit will move into our hearts and say, "Uh, it turns out your way is not as great as you think. And we say, ah, I need need his way. My way is a a road to death. I want a road to life. So God, I, I, I trust you, I'm done trusting me. And we receive his grace by faith. His grace is poured out on us. How much grace do we get? I have no idea. All I know is it's too much. If our sin required a cup of grace, he'd give us a gallon. That's how he rolls. He's a doting father. So he pours out his grace on us as we trust in him. His Holy Spirit moves in us that we might say, God, I don't want the way of death anymore. I want the way of life in Christ. And so he gives us new life. He gives us righteousness in Christ. And in his blood is a covenant that says, I promise you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we spend the rest of our Christian life trying to out the grace of God. And many of you are saying, no, that's not how I do it. I Okay, that's fine, however you want to label it. Has, have any of us been able to out the grace of God yet? No, we got some varsity sinners in here. We got first-team all-stars. And Jesus says, you, your, your sin does not hold a candle to my grace. Nice try. And then at some moment in our Christian life, we say, this is, this is amazing. And, and the love of God fills our heart by the power of the Spirit. And we say, you know what? Maybe I want to start living my life instead of seeking to outsin the grace of God to live according to the grace of God. And he makes us over and over again more like Jesus. So we celebrate at communion, the bread and the cup. And what do we say about the cup? It is a symbol of the blood of Christ in which is a covenant, a promise. I will make you righteous I will make you holy, and in fact, you are righteous and holy in Christ, and that will never, ever fail. So the question is, in the story of our Christian life, we can feel loss, we can feel grief, we can feel anger, we can feel fear, and in all of those emotions, the questions we have to ask ourselves, though, is where and who will I trust? So in that little sentence we talked about earlier, God seems distant. You have two choices here. You can trust seems, or we can trust a promise that was blood-bought. Seems feels. 
seems is an emotion. And there's nothing that is more truer feeling than seems. But we have to decide, either he promises to never be distant by his shed blood, or seems is true. And we have to, in that moment, say, what are we going to trust? The fact is, we tend to believe seems. It's so present, it's visceral, it's in our guts. And Jesus is calling us to trust the blood-bought promise. You know what happens when you die of hypothermia? How do they find most people who have died of hypothermia? You know how they find most people? Of course, some of you know this. Undressed. Because one of the symptoms of moving towards the fatal version of hypothermia is a great sensation of feeling overheated. And you discard your coat and your pants and your boots and your gloves and your uh, underbritches. Because you feel this heat. But the fact is, you're not hot. You're, you're freezing to death. So in, in that moment, are we going to believe the seams or are we going to believe what is true? The blood-bought, shed blood of Christ where he says, I promise you, you will not be abandoned. I will never be distant. Again, some of you are already trying to talk yourself out of this, aren't you? You're saying this. This is what you say. And you only say this because I said it on the way in here this morning. You have no idea what I did this week. No, seriously, great. If you had any idea what it looked like, you wouldn't be preaching this message. You'd say, okay, we got the one guy who figured out how to make God distant. Fortunately, the Bible makes no qualification. There is now, therefore, some condemnation. Amen? No. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what it seems. There's no condemnation. But I seem condemned. Your seeming's wrong. In Christ, his blood is shed. The condemnation is gone. Amen. Hallelujah. What do I do when all is lost? In the midst of that, God is distant. We experience the loss, the grief, the anger, the seems is all true, and David experienced all of those through. But when it comes down to the foundation of what am I going to do and how am I going to operate, I'm going to operate on what not seems, but what is. His blood was shed for sinners like us. His blood was shed for rebels like us before we had any sense to appreciate it. God may seem distant, but for the believer in Christ, that is a non-possibility. It does not require the Ark of the Covenant. It does not require church attendance. It requires Jesus' blood to be true. What do we do when all is lost and my shame, failure, and guilt is overwhelming me? Chapter 16, David's making his way up the Mount of Olives, cresting the top. He comes across a guy named Ziba. Sounds like an energy drink. He's weeping his way up the Mount of Olives. Ziba shows up with several donkeys laden with supplies. He appreciates the supplies. We don't have time to get into it. But Ziba is the one who is caring for the uh, estate of a, a crippled man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the uh, grandson of King Saul. And David says, where is Mephibosheth? David had extended kindness to Mephibosheth. 
And Ziba said, Mephibosheth has abandoned you and is now going to serve under Absalom. And David, in quick fashion, takes all of Mephibosheth's property and grants it to Ziba. We're going to discover in chapter 19 of 2 Samuel that Ziba was probably being less than honest. Mephibosheth was still being true to David. But here David is again on his way out of Israel, running for his life. So far he's encountered a battalion of Philistines, not Israelites, and now Ziba, one of the servants of King Saul. How could it possibly get worse? Oh, it's going to get worse. The guy named Shimei shows up. Shimei shows up in verse 5 of chapter 16. Shimei is faithful to King Saul's regime, and Shimei follows David all along his journey from the top of the Mount of Olives to the Jordan River, cursing him as he goes, throwing rocks and dirt all over him. Okay, this is 30-some miles through the desert, the entire way, a guy's throwing rocks and dirts on David while cursing him aloud the entire distance. You thought the trip up Mount of Olives was bad. The downhill part was worse. One of his bodyguards turned to him and said, Hey, David, I got an idea. Yeah, what, what would you like to do? I'd like to take his head and separate it from his torso. Think that will make our trip more comfortable? What do you think? And David said this, God has sent him. God has sent him. We will listen to his cursings. We will receive his dirt and stones. Walk to the Jordan River. In fact, he says this to that man, to the one who wanted to kill him. Well, I don't have anything to do with you. You and I do not think about these things the same. He curses David. He throws stones at David. And David says this in verse 10 of chapter 16. I wrote verse 10, but it's the wrong verse. Either way, he says, this is from God. This is God sending this to me. I'm not going to send him away. If God wants him to go away, then he'll go away. Something that is absolutely true about David in this moment is he has a sense that what is happening to him, having to abandon Israel, having to uh, flee from his palace, and now being sh uh, showered with stones and dirt and curses, he has a sense that the result, this is all the result of some of his own actions. What are some actions he's done that might result in this happening? Um, having an affair with Bathsheba is not a good idea. Ahithophel, the advisor that has abandoned David for his son, is the grandfather of Bathsheba. There's a little bit of a, an issue there. David did not provide any justice for Absalom or his sister Tamar when uh, his son Amnon assaulted Tamar. And now Absalom has taken his throne because of a beef he has with David over his passivity around that horrible incident. So David is running for his life, and he knows full well, I'm running for my life I'm, because of my actions. So as a result, he says this, leave him alone, let him curse. This is verse 11 of chapter 16. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Let him curse. And let God figure out what's true. Let him curse. What I have done requires cursing. And so David marches to the Jordan River. The Bible tells us in verse 14, they arrive, Shimei finally goes home, and they uh, arrive at their destination exhausted. 
Could you imagine marching 30-some miles being pelted with rocks and dirt? They arrive exhausted. David has lost everything. Betrayed, abandoned, God is distanced. He's walking a dusty road pelted by an accuser, and the fact is his accuser is actually right because many of the issues he's facing are his own fault. There's one thing I want to point out by way of closing. I don't know if you noticed the direction that David went out of town. Did you notice? He headed east up the Mount of Olives. And as many authors have noted, either Samuel is a prophet or the Gospels changed the story of Jesus' life to make it match because they are too similar. And the fact is, God is trying to tell us something about the child of David. He is going to walk a road of shame. He is going to walk a road of guilt. He is going to walk a road of betrayal. Jesus is going to lose everything. And instead of walking away from Jerusalem, he's going to take that very same road down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Jesus was betrayed by who? Just everybody. Judas, certainly, but before he died on the cross, all had abandoned him. Jesus was alone. As one author described, Jesus on the cross was the most alone anyone in all of history has ever been. Jesus was forsaken by his friends, by his family, and of course by the Father himself when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus carried on his shoulders, on his back, the shame and the guilt of not just you and not just me, but all of humankind. David's experience on that road of shame and abandonment and betrayal is in large part a result of his own actions. Jesus' betrayal, Jesus' loneliness, Jesus' shame is a complete result of our actions. If we find ourselves in the story of David walking out of Jerusalem, probably the most compelling place to find ourselves is the role of Shimei, pelting him with rocks and stones and cursing him. And profoundly because of his love and grace for us, he walks that road anyway and says, don't worry about it, I got it, I'll walk with the dirt you cast onto me and the stones you throw upon me, I'm still going to go die for you. In fact, I would suggest that David, I should say this, Jesus walked the same road as David. He just simply walked it better. And he walked it as an innocent. And he did that so that all of these things, betrayal, aloneness, forsakenness, and shame and guilt, so that none of those things would ever describe our relationship with Jesus. That in trusting in him, he can't betray us. And he wouldn't want to. He will never leave us alone. He will never forsake us. And he will never again revisit upon us his shame and guilt that he bore for us. Jesus was betrayed alone and forsaken. So what do we do when all is lost? I'll make a suggestion here. and I run the risk of sounding trite. I would suggest this. It's only trite if it's not true. If it is true, it's compelling. When all is lost, what do we do when all is lost? Well, the fact is, all is not lost if all I have is in Christ. In fact, all cannot be lost if all I have is in Christ. 
if what matters to me, if, if the significance of who I am and what my life is about and what lifts my heart is found in him, can it be lost? No, because he can't be lost. He has bound himself by his blood and his promise to always be near. And all cannot be lost if all I have is in Christ. I'm going to read Psalm 37 by way of closing. Not the whole thing, just a couple of verses here. I haven't decided what part I'm going to read yet. You can't wait to hear, I can tell. Oh, what's he going to read? Okay, I'm going to read a big chapter. Psalm 37, beginning in verse 3, I'm going to read through verse 13, just 10 verses. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot out against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart, because if we delight in the Lord, he becomes the desire of our heart. What do we do when we have lost everything, when we're betrayed and we've lost our friends and we're alone and we're forsaken? Is We must trust the Lord and realize he cannot betray us. He will not leave us alone. He will not forsake us. And there will be a day that will, that will dawn and we will see and experience his hope anew. Delight in the Lord. He'll give you the delight of your heart. Why don't you join? I want to, want to have you stand. We're going to pray just for a minute by way of closing. Why don't you join me as we stand? I'm going to begin with praying and give you a chance to respond here momentarily.